How nice. They told me, I've never been in the third service. So, um, you're, you're very nice people. Um, good to be here with you. And uh, my kids and grandkids surprised me. They are all here somewhere on campus. We're in the last service. Uh, I said to Matt, who's also a pastor up at High Desert Church in, in uh, Apple Valley, because uh, we, this was supposed to be his weekend to preach up there, and I, so and it's always a labor for him as it is for me. I mean, it kind of ruins a week. <laughs> Nothing personal, <laughs> but you know, when you open this book, it's it's tough. And uh, so we've been praying for Matt all week that the Lord would really give him freedom and boldness. And come to find out, he wasn't scheduled to preach. He said, "Dad, I didn't lie to you." I just said, thank you for praying for me. <laughs> and it's really going well. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, how we have loved this family. 31 years ago, we came here with two young boys, one in junior high and one in high school, from Santa Barbara. And uh, you became more than a career. You became a family where we worshiped together and grew together and learned together and did life together. And we're still going to do things together. Uh, I just won't do it in the form that I'm normally doing it. Uh, I won't be in a lot of extra meetings. I am retiring from uh, to go to some other ministries. One will be the Legacy Coalition, the grandparenting ministry that we began about three years ago. And I also want to practice what I'm preaching. And so we're going to be spending time with grandchildren and children and that woman over there that... Uh, I've lived with for 51 years. In fact, we took our first ministry two weeks after, after we were married. So we've never known marriage without ministry. <clears throat> and Jackie's been questioning me about, now you're going to be home every lunch? I don't do lunch, John. So um, if you want to do lunch, just call me and I'll give her a break from me. And those who work here at the church understand what that's all about. I... Um, I'm different. Um, I found this, uh, you know, as I've been looking over my, uh, my history here at the church and even just in my work career, though it's always been a calling, I was just reminded, you know, my first job. Uh, my first job was working in an orange juice factory, uh, but I, I got canned because I couldn't concentrate. And uh, so next I started working um, in a muffler factory. But I, that was really exhausting and I couldn't handle that. So I became a professional fisherman, but I discovered that I couldn't live on my net income. Then I worked at a workout center, but they said I wasn't fit. And so finally, uh, after many years of trying to find steady work before ministry, I got a job as historian until I realized that there was really no future in it. So that's kind of where we have been in, in life. Um, I, I also want to say this about retirement. It does appear in God's Word. People have been telling you, you know, nowhere do you find the word retirement in Scripture. You do. Numbers chapter 8. Moses tells the priest, at age 50, you will retire. Your word is used. But you have to understand what the role of a priest was. 
They listened to sins being confessed. They took animals and they butchered them and they put them on the altar and they prayed and they, then they had a barbecue. They had feasts. So they, it was labor, laborious work. And so at age 50, God is saying, don't want, I don't want you to do backbreaking work anymore. I want you to do man-making work. I want you to invest in the priest, the younger priest, and teach them what it's like to serve me. Teach them from your lessons. So that's kind of what we're, we're doing and what we're about and very, very excited about what God has for us, even though we've never retired before. I want to talk to you this morning. If I were to put a cap on this passage, it would be outrageous, reckless worship. That's what I want to talk to you about. That's what that passage said as we read it, those 11 verses. And uh, it's, it's quite a narrative filled with excitement and intrigue. Uh, it's a marvelous, marvelous, spectacular story filled with mystery that would rival any Marvel superhero adventure on the screen. And it's true. This is the word of the Lord. The setting is this. It's spring break. It's Passover coming up. And so everyone's on vacation. They're bringing their families into Jerusalem for a celebration to celebrate the freedom that they found when God took them out of Egypt and gave them a land, provided for them everything that they needed. And God didn't want his people to forget any of these things. And so he had seven different feasts every year for them to celebrate so that they could tell their children and their children's children's what God is like and has been like through the millenniums. Excitement is in the air. The place is buzzed with people. There are family reunions. There's food. There's feasting. And the um, place probably looked a little like Disneyland this week when Star Wars opened. I mean, people everywhere. And so they were given permission to find housing wherever they could in homes on hillsides in Bethany. And that's the setting. The context is, I just want to remind us, when the, the gospel writers wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this Holy Spirit put a purpose in them. Matthew, as a Jewish man, and as a tax collector before, writes to the people of Israel and lets them know that they, the Messiah is here he has come, and he's the king. That's what that book says. In the book of Mark, written to Romans, it's presented, Christ is presented as the suffering servant, as the savior. In the book of Luke, we have a doctor, medical doctor, Dr. Luke, a Greek, who reminds us that Jesus was fully human. He was a man, along with divinity. And then John, the book we've been journeying through these past months, was written to inspire belief in the Savior, who is indeed God himself, I, the Son of God. John chapter 8, everything kind of trans, uh, it changes, the mood changes, when Jesus makes a declaration that the religious leaders can't handle. He says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. He claimed to be God. And he knew that was the path he must take. That's why he came originally. And so John wants us to believe. And he gives us irrefutable facts from his own eyes and his experience as he records these things in his narrative. 
I'm a word sleuth. I, I love words. And I've discovered that in the book of John, the word believe appears 98 times. Methinks he's trying to make a point. The word is used in this chapter nine times. Believe, believe, believe. And then the word life, because this is what he's talking about. Where are you going to find life? You need to believe in the one who established life, who gives life, who ordains life. It appears 47 times in this book. And then the word signs appears 17 times because John's point is these are irrefutable facts and I saw this with my own eyes. So John gives near the end of the gospel chapter 20 and 21 these words just to sum it up because this book could have been a lot bigger. Now Jesus, John 20, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then chapter 21, 24, and 25. This is the disciple, John says, who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many of the things Jesus did, but were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written because so many of the books were written on the hearts of people. <laughs> so many of the incidents happened personally. And so as we look at this passage today, we see Jesus beginning his last week on earth, the pain, the rejection, the crucifixion that's to come, all planned he could have stopped the whole process, but that's why he came. We're reminded in John chapter 1, as John's establishing who this Jesus is, the creator of the world, he says, but he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. But as many as did receive him, they became children of God. They were part of the family. They call him Father. Note some critical things here in moments. In John chapter 6, remember Jesus had told them that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Well, in John 6, people no longer walked with him, it says, in verse 66, even though he was the way. In chapter 12, of, later on in the chapter, we won't get to that today, but we find that many would not believe in him even though he was the truth. And then in John 19, the third crisis comes when Jesus is crucified. And he dies even though he is the life. But it's only momentary. The Lord relates to four different groups of folks in this chapter. We're going to deal with one group, his friends. And they've gathered for a dinner party there in Bethany. It's an interesting thing. Interesting group of people. Fascinating. I would have loved to have been around the table and heard the conversation and shared the food that was for both heart and body. Jesus, of course, is the guest of honor along with Lazarus. Jesus' life on earth is coming to an end. And it took the highest courage of the, the Savior, even though he was God, he was man, to enter Jerusalem and the, and the multitudes and the crowds because they're looking for him. 
They have considered him an outlaw. In fact, in chapter 11, verse 57, it says they were trying to find him to arrest him. The religious leaders. And then you have Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, back on planet Earth after four days in paradise. Can you imagine being called back? My guess is he was a little ticked at his sisters for persuading Jesus to call him back out. It's kind of like being in Maui and you've been called back to work. And then you have Simon. It's in his home. Matthew and Mark tell us that whose home it was. It was the home of Simon the leper. There's a story. He was probably a wealthy man because this house is going to feed at least 17 people, hold 17 people, the dinner party. He's, many theologians believe he was the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Which would be interesting in that he's Simon the leper. That had to be pretty convincing to the family in that he was no longer a leper or he would not have been having a social gathering at his house. He would have been an outcast. Outside the gates, as his body begins to fall apart, digits fall off his hands. It's a terrible living death. Features of your faith start falling off. And you no longer can be in public. And when you, are, when you see people, you yell out to remind them to steer clear of you. Unclean! These were untouchable people. And he's been healed. We don't know who, if it was the word of Jesus, if it was one of the disciples, if it was the prayers. All we know is that he's made whole. And he's part of the dinner party. What a story. Two decomposing men have come back to life. Lazarus dead four days. Simon the leper dying of leprosy. I mean, perhaps the measles scare that we had here and heard about in the news a week or two ago with the one lady on the airplane and they sequester everyone after that. Well, leprosy was similar. But Simon the leper, his body is back in shape, no longer unclean, no longer outcast, no longer cut off from society, no longer untouchable. Then you have Mary and Martha. Then you have Judas, who was also, his father was Simon, son of Simon, but also had the name Iscariot. It was interesting. That came from the, that word, Iscariot, came from the land of Moab, but it it literally meant assassin. I'm not sure if you'd name your children Iscariot, but I'm not sure you'd name him Judas either. Well, and then you have the disciples, including Judas. Perhaps 17 people, there may have been other guests there. All I know is that it was a joyful occasion, processing what had happened, getting ready to celebrate Passover. And in part of this chapter, verse 10, we see the chief priests and Pharisees. More about them later. But there are three designated groups. There's the curious group. There are the crowds. I mean, who of us doesn't like to follow a fire engine? I don't. My son's a fireman. I I don't follow him. But I'm interested to where they're going, and I want to know what's happening in my neighborhood especially 
or if you see smoke or you see something unusual happening, we're curious people. And so were they. And they lived outside more than they did inside. And so Jesus is doing dinners for 5,000, 10,000 people in a major way. He's healing people. He brings Lazarus back to life. He's, he's a big item on the news. Everyone wants a piece of him. But maybe this morning we have curious people here. And I, I'm glad you came. If, if you were just curious, you haven't had buy-in yet with what this is all about, I welcome you. We welcome you to this place. There are honest skeptics and there are dishonest skeptics. And this is, this is a hospital. This is not a trophy case. This is where we come to learn, to grow, to find security and encouragement. It's where we come to learn this book and get to know Jesus better to aid us in our walk throughout the rest of the week. The crowds were there. And if you're here as a skeptic, I, I encourage you to uh, keep plowing. There are answers. I just do know that the only way some of these mysteries are revealed is through the Spirit of God. It's not till you say, I believe, help my unbelief. Not only were the crowds curious, but we have a committed group of folks, the friends of Jesus. We've just talked about them. And then finally, we're going to talk about the counterfeit, the enemies of Jesus. The, the curious, the committed. These people who gathered at the dinner, apart from Judas, are committed. Even the disciples, even though they're going to rag on Mary in a moment. They, along with Judas, they were all disgusted with the waste that she created with this ointment. But Jesus now shines a spotlight on this second group in the opening words of chapter 12. And what it appears is a variety of people worshiping in a variety of ways the one true God, Jesus. Sometimes we think that only what's done up here, what's spoken is worthy of praise. This gathering this morning didn't happen without people. Many, 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 many people in the background from the parking lot to what took place in the office this week, the communication, the planning of music, the running off of music, cleaning this place up, running the sound booth. We worship the Lord with our lives. It's not just with our songs and our ears. Worshiping takes many forms and is a 24-7 activity Acknowledging, seeking, enjoying, and basking in God's presence. Martha's serving in the kitchen. Her worship is heating up muffins and fixing lamb chops. She loves to serve. Lazarus and Simon, they're with Jesus in fellowship. Two fellows in a ship, three fellows in a ship, along with the rest. Companionship, enjoying the presence of Jesus. That's worship. The sacredness of eating food together. Did you ever think about why you get hungry three times a day, unlike some animals and creatures? There's something about coming together that is sacred. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. And as we eat it, we're reminded it's easier to cook for many than few. And we're reminded where it came from and we thank God for the sustenance every day. 
And then you have Mary, who will anoint Jesus' feet and head with a very expensive perfume. And then wipe her hair with, wipe the, his feet with her hair and pour out her heart to him in a heartwarming worship. Dr. Henry Holloman from our church here, former prophet Talbot, wrote a dictionary, Kriegel's Dictionary of the Bible, and I just looked up the word worship. Let's remind ourselves. It means worth-ship, value, devoting one's thoughts, words, and deeds to giving glory to God in adoration, praise, thanksgiving, confession of sin, and dependence. It's where I turn my mind and heart with, and will and emotions to a high sea. Colossians 3, it says, Do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than men. It's the Lord God you serve. And then he goes into, let it be done in harmony. So the Lord tunes us up and lets us, in a variety of ways, worship him, which makes life interesting. Let's talk about Lazarus a little bit more. He was out of the ordinary. I mean, no one else had come to life again after being dead. And he stank, so he was dead. And there's a wanted poster on him, but it says dead, not alive. We'll get into why they want him dead, the religious leaders. And then you have Simon, who's also an outcast. And both of these tested and witnessed the power of Jesus. They were testimony. Part of what they did to give glory to God was bear witness. I don't know, once I was a leper, now I'm not. I do know I was once dead. In fact, I'm kind of ticked that I had to come back. But I'm breathing air on earth now, and I'm with my family, and I'm with Jesus. And I get to see how he's going to win salvation for me. Both of these men, they could have been out dealing with the media because everyone wanted to talk to him. But they came together in this little home setting to spend time with Jesus. So that God himself, Jesus himself, would get the glory, not them. We have Martha, who's serving. She loves working with her hands. She's a practical woman, quietly, joyfully serving, preparing the meal at the table. But if we look in chapter 11, she was quite irritable. Jesus, Mary's sitting at your feet. That's in Luke chapter 10. Mary's sitting at your feet, and I'm in here in the kitchen working alone. Please, tell her to come help me. But we have a different Martha here. Martha's life and heart has been changed. Her reason for service has been changed. And there's a joy that she didn't have before. You, you can serve the Lord without loving him. You can. We do. But you can't love the Lord... You can't truly love the Lord without serving him. It's one of those natural responses, or I should say supernatural. You're, you can't contain it. And Martha is probably singing and whistling in the kitchen, preparing her dinner rolls. And then we have, we have Martha, Mary. She's devoted but she's got outlandish behavior. She's going against the norms, the customs. She's doing things that are really taboo. You shouldn't do that as a woman in the presence of men. 
But she can't hold it in because of her deep love and appreciation and love and devotion for Jesus. It's extravagant love. It's lavish love. I, I remember when our Matt turned 18 years of age and I wanted to do a special ceremony with him. We invited all of his friends into the living room and family came from all over Santa Barbara. And, uh, and I'd been debating with Jackie. Do we, I wanted to give Matt my guitar, my Martin D18 guitar, 1949, 1950. It was about $3,000 worth of guitar. It had been given to me when I was in college by a friend. But I debated on whether or not I would give it to him. (laughs) Should I do it, Jackie? I mean, I need my guitar because I was leading Lion Tamers at the time and and I remember I did not know until that very moment we were in the living room and I looked at Matt then I couldn't contain myself and I went over and picked up my guitar I said Matt here and Matt stood up we were both crying he said no dad I know what that means to you but that was the very reason I needed to give it to him. Now he leads with that guitar worship every Sunday. It's outlandish. It's extravagant. It's lavish to take the most precious thing that we possess and spend it all on Jesus. Why? It wasn't just love and gratitude, it was also faith. She knew something that no one else knew. She anticipated his death. The disciples had no clue. She got it. Why? Because she sat at the feet of Jesus. And she listened with not just her reasoning. How do you reason what Jesus did for us? It's unreasonable. It's mysterious. It's miraculous. And so she was extravagant with her gift. Well, what was the gift? Nard. Doesn't sound good. Spike nard plant. Looks like a spike grown in the Himalayas of India. That's the only place you can find nard. So I guess part of the cost and price was getting it, getting it down, and how much it must have taken to get this incredible fragrance. Highly priced ointment. Luxury. In a... Alistair, alabaster <clears throat> jar, which was a soft stone carved beautifully and then sealed and capped so you would have to break it to get to the precious ointment. I brought some not precious ointment, <clears throat> but it cost something. I mean, she didn't spray it. She poured it out on Jesus. This, is, by the way, is not men in skin bracer either. I wish I had fans up here. I mean, I think this is what Nordstrom's does when we walk into their place. Have you noticed? It's somehow to lessen our commitment to our wallet. But it fills a room with this aroma and this fragrance, and it sets a stage. Well, it was used for burials. It was used for romance. It was used as medicine, but it was used for royalty. When they would anoint a king or a priest or a prophet, 
It was part of a ceremony. One Roman pound is almost 12 ounces. It wasn't 16 ounces, but it was worth a year's wages. It was a denarii, was a day's wages, 300 days worth of work. Today, it would probably be $45,000, $50,000. Some of you are saying, where would you get stuff like that? I looked on the web. Uh, it says, um, Clive Christian Number no. 1 Imperial Majesty Perfume, weightless and enchanting, touch of Tahitian vanilla with a hint of Rosa Centifolis, that is reminiscent of the goddess of love and beauty Aphrodite, $12,722 an ounce. I mean, it wasn't even Canal Number no. 5. It was something precious. Richard Swenson, a medical doctor, writes these words. Love is the only medicine I know of that when used according to directions heals completely, yet takes one's life away. It's dangerous, uncontrollable. It can never be taken on any terms but its own. Why? Because you love someone, you become vulnerable, you give yourself away, you could get hurt. You could get rejected. Yet as a healer of the emotions, it has no equal. Love is the currency of the relational life. In the relational life, we spend love, we receive love. That was God's idea from the beginning. It is what he taught us and is what he showed us. God wants us to spend love freely, even generously. He continues, with money, the more you hoard, the richer you become. But with love, the more you spend, the richer you become. As you can see, love is not like other resources. There is an infinite supply. You can use it and use it, yet there will always be more left over. Must we love, he ends? That's a nonsensical question. It's like asking, must, must we breathe? No, we don't have to breathe. No, we don't have to love. But the consequences of both those decisions will be the same. <laughs> what is life? without love and God has put inside of us this capacity through the spirit of God to give us endless love when things are unlovable when people are unlovable when we don't want to be gracious when we get bumped grace spills out in the form of love and they shake their heads saying what was that and they're drawn to it well what's of greatest value the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, as after he describes love in detail, he says, and now that these things remain, the faith, hope, love. But the greatest of all these things is love. And Mary had a love for the Savior. Let's talk about the counterfeits for a moment. Judas, chief priests, who are also Sadducees and Pharisees. All priests were also Sadducees. And of course, the reason they were sad, you see, is because, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they got a problem because Lazarus is walking around and he's on everyone's lips. What? I was there. I said, no. Man, I, I smelled him. It wasn't pretty. And here he is. Well, this would theologically be 
a major, major, major problem for them. And so what do you do? You suppress truth, you seek to destroy the evidence in order to further your own interest and greed. But the other area is that these were the folks, these were the wealthy, aristocratic class of Jews who were running the government for the Romans. They were, on, they were the watchdogs for the people of Israel as long as they kept them under control. But this Jesus is talking about a kingdom. In fact, he declared himself king of the Jews. And he really would have been if Mary and David's line hadn't been able to continue. Their role was to keep everyone happy in the Roman world. But if things got out of hand and there was a rebellion, they lost their jobs, they lost their comfort, they lost their wealth, and they lost their position of power. Do you all of a sudden see why there was such conflict with the religious leaders in Jesus? He was a disturbing force in their way of life. But we come to the main point here. The main point is, why did Jesus, Mary anoint Jesus? Because she had sat at his feet, as we've said. Got to know him. Fell in love with him. Not in a romantic way. But she was worshiping God in the flesh. She probably had read many times what David, King David had written in Psalm 46. Be still and know that I'm God. She wasn't always still. In chapter 11 when Lazarus has died, she doesn't come out. It's Martha that talks to Jesus. Jesus, where were you? She's in grieving. She's filled with emotion. She's in a turbulent period. But her brother's back, but also is her faith. That's why these things were written. And it's interesting that when all the ladies ran to the tomb after Jesus was crucified to anoint Jesus, she did not go. Why? Because she had already anointed him. 23 years ago, a lady and her husband came into my office and he said, I, uh, doctor tells me I don't have a year left to live, maybe some months, I've never died before, what do I need to know? I'd never been approached that way before. I kind of stammered, I'm sure, and I said, well, Jim, uh, are you ready to meet the Lord? Oh, yeah. And to make it brief, how are things with, between you and your wife and you and your kids, you and the people you worked with? Have you cleaned up anything that maybe have gone wrong, made things right as much as you can? Oh, yeah. So I said, well, then let's do your funeral early. He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know what I mean. I've never done this before. But what came out of that was what we call the living eulogy. And so we gathered at their house three weeks later, day after Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Kids and grandkids. And Jim was able to say to his children and his grandchildren what they meant to him and bless them. And his children and grandchildren were able to say to Grandpa and Dad what they felt of him, how they blessed him, how he had blessed them. And 
Nancy was able to say the same. And it turned out to be a glorious three hours together, giving flowers, giving roses to the living. Interesting, the word eulogy, eulogia, to speak well of. Why do we give flowers to dead people only? When in life, it would breed life and create life in fresh new ways and new relationships. People could die in peace and die with joy and say goodbye. Well, this is what Mary did. So she breaks that alabaster jar. She pours this out on, and the other passages tell us on his head, down to his feet. And she's inappropriate in the sense that she's in a room with men. She lets her hair down, which you don't do in that culture after you're married, and uses her tears along with the ointment and her hair to wash Jesus' feet. And the fragrance filled the place. And today, we still talk about the fragrance that came out of the love between Jesus and Mary. And that's what the church should be, a fragrant sacrifice. Love is extravagant. Well, love is humble. When you do what she did without thought, unconsciously, so to speak, you become vulnerable to the crowds, to the comments. It's hard for proud people to worship God because they are their own gods. And I warn us that we become like what we worship. The disciples were outspoken. Their noses were out of joint about this waste, led by Judas, but they were all in. And Jesus scolds him and says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you want and please want, you can do good for them. Deuteronomy 15, take care of the poor. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so in memoriam, this lady, who didn't do things quite according to tradition, we look at her worship and say, wow. And so as we close today, I want to challenge us in our worship as we are going to get ready to go and do some singing. To pour our hearts out and our, and our words and our lives out before the Lord with everything we are, our time, the talents that God's given to us, the resources. And I know, being raised Baptist, that, I mean, this is hard for me. I mean, I remember when we were pastoring Santa Barbara, I mean, I could get it to here. That's pretty good. But when we go this way and then turn our hands upside down so that we're not clinging to anything, it's a, sign, it's, a, it's a symbol for us, for me, to say, Lord, I, I trust you. But it also means a couple of things. One is, one reason I have a hard time is I'm ticklish. You get behind me and, and the kids, the grandkids. So I always am against the wall when I have my hands up. And a boxer doesn't come out and do this until he's won. Otherwise, he's guarding himself.
We do that with God. And there are times we just need to raise our hands and look up and say, Lord, Father, would you hold me? And lastly, this is a universal sign of surrender. If you're done carrying the load, if you're done with the battle and the fight and you're giving up, which when you're wanting God to lead is really a good thing because he does so much better. And so I invite you into the worship as the team comes. I invite you to open your hearts to the Lord. If you've never asked him into your life, it's as simple as the ABCs. Admit that you're a sinner. That's maybe the hardest. That you need a Savior. Believe that he's the Savior of the whole world, including you. That he came for you and he loves you. And lastly, choose to be all in with your commitment and to believe, and with your belief, begin to walk with him in faith. I invite you to come forward. You can kneel down here. You can go into the prayer room. Our counselors will be there to pray with you. If you've never invited Christ in your life, I'll be down here. I'd love to help guide you into that. Let's worship the Lord together.